0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. They've been branded as hipsters by their critics. But it has nothing to do with what they wear or the music they listen to. It has to do with their views on antitrust. They're a small group of policy wonks critical of the increasing consolidation of corporation. You can probably name many of those corporate giants. They not only want to toughen antitrust enforcement, but also to return antitrust policy to its early 20th century roots. Bloomberg News legal reporter David McLaughlin has written about their mission in this week's Bloomberg Business Week, and he joins us now. David, Tell us about these competition policy wonks as you describe them in your story.
1: Yeah, so they're a group of uh, folks here in Washington, mostly, um, that have been speaking out a lot about um, big companies, um, warning about the, the threat from uh, monopolies, uh, especially uh, in, in, in technology and um they were uh, basically spun out of a, th- a think tank uh, here in in DC called New America, and they f- they formed this uh, new organization called Open Markets, and they've been gaining a lot of attention because um, you know there's been a long debate uh, in the world of antitrust about. Um, how tough to be on mergers in, in, in big companies for many years. And, and, and the pendulum has sort of swung back and forth on that during uh, different administrations. But you know, essentially, the, 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 the basic playbook for how to evaluate mergers and, and monopolies has always been the same. And these guys are saying that whole playbook just needs to be uh, thrown out.
0: So tell us about the old playbook, which is based on the notion of consumer welfare.
1: Right, so that was a, a notion that um, uh, came to be really in the early 1980s. Um, it was a, a, uh, it was brought up by uh, Robert Bork um, in a, in a book he called uh, in a book he wrote called uh, the Antitrust Paradox. Um, essentially, uh, the idea is that when, when we think about whether a merger should be should be blocked or should be allowed, and when we think about uh, dominant companies and their and their market power. The, the the question is, are you know is the deal or is the company harming consumers? and 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 for the most part, uh, that has meant that has meant price. So when antitrust enforcers um, investigate uh, a merger, they're primarily focused on on price. and will the combined company, Gain the, the the power from from combining to be able to raise prices on you know their their customers, um, and um, that's been basically the framework. And so um, the but there's been these these swings. So like you know typically like you know in the Obama administration they were seen as uh, somewhat more aggressive on merger enforcements during the Bush administration. The sort of conventional thinking is they were slightly more hands off, but. But the kind of the way to evaluate the deals is uh, uh, thinking about consumer welfare. That's always been sort of the, the agreed upon framework.
0: So, what is the main criticism of the theories of these competition policy wonks? What's so, the opposition saying about them?
1: Yeah, so they say that that this this whole notion is sort of um, you know corrupted um, the uh, the the reason, f- the reason why antitrust laws were um, brought into place a hundred years ago, um, this was the time of you know Standard Oil, uh, et cetera, and the and the and the tr- the, the, tr- the trusts of a hundred years ago, um, and so <clears throat> they say that basically this you know pursuing this framework has got us not has basically harmed consumers because it's led to these gigantic companies um, like techno- like in technology or very consolidated um, airline industry uh, a very uh consolidated banking industry so you can look at a number of different industries that um, that have consolidated over the years uh, and they say this has um this may be, in some cases, led to lower prices for consumers, but there have been other harms that the framework, uh, the consumer welfare standard has, has sort of missed, and th- those are harms that have affected um, workers and other elements of supply chains in different industries.
0: So, David, are we seeing some shift in antitrust enforcement policies, for example, with the Justice Department going to court to stop the merger of AT&T and Time Warner, where they're not just looking at vertical versus horizontal?
1: Um, you know, that that deal in particular was definitely a shift. Um, I, I don't think, though, that it was because of the, this hipster antitrust movement, although they they certainly supported the challenge, um, that that was a, certainly a shift in that um, in because it was not a horizontal deal; it was a vertical deal. Vertical deals had tended to been tended to be approved with with conditions on how companies operated, and that surprised a lot. That the AT and T lawsuit surprised a lot of people because. Um, the government is going to court to block it, and basically saying there are no uh, behavioral or conduct conditions that, that can fix um, that can fix the deal. So, you know, I think it's still kind of early in this administration to know whether their approach is going to be significantly different, um, or whether the you know the AT&T case is is, is sort of a one-off. Um, but it has certainly that, that case certainly has a lot of people asking that question.
0: Let's turn for a few moments to Broadcom, which is one of the world's largest chip makers. Through a string of acquisitions over the past few years, it said it's under investigation by U.S. antitrust officials for potentially anti-competitive conduct. Can you explain what's happening with Broadcom?
1: Uh, so, uh, the Broadcom, Broadcom said yesterday they put out a statement saying that the um, that the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, which is the other antitrust enforcement agency in, in the U.S., is uh, investigating anti-competitive uh, conduct by the company. It didn't elaborate on exactly what uh, conduct that is, although it said that it's not um, it's not related to their wireless business. This is about, I, th- I think, um, if it's not their wireless, it would be the sort of network, um, network business. Um so we don't know exactly what the FTC is concerned about. Um, I think the, the, the news of that investigation spooked the market briefly because uh, Broadcom is in the process of trying to buy its rival uh, rival chipmaker Qualcomm. So I think some investors were, were concerned that, well, if the FTC is worried about uh, Broadcom's, con- Broadcom's conduct, then that might affect uh, the merger review, um, the, the, the Qualcomm merger review. Uh, So we'll have to see.
0: We will, and I'm sure there's a lot more antitrust coming up. Thanks so much. That's Bloomberg News legal reporter David McLaughlin. And you can read his article in the latest Bloomberg Businessweek. It's entitled Hipsters Versus Chicago, the Fight to Rewrite the Antitrust Playbook. of executive privilege during Steve Bannon's testimony at the House Intelligence Panel have thrown a glaring spotlight on the potential conflicts of interest of White House counsel Don McGahn. McGahn has not only been interviewed by investigators for the special counsel in the Russia probe, Bannon's lawyer is also his lawyer, and McGahn's office was involved in instructing Bannon on which questions from the House panel he should answer, he shouldn't answer, according to a person familiar with the matter. Walter Schaub, former director of the Department Department of Government Ethics, spoke about McGahn's position with CNN earlier this month.
1: He can try to hide behind the, I was only following orders, but that didn't work at Nuremberg, and it's not going to work here because as an attorney, the president is not his client. The office of the president is, is his client, and he's ultimately answerable to the American people.
0: Joining me is Tom Schoenberg, Bloomberg News financial crime reporter. Tom, describe what happened when these areas of concern to the White House came up during Bannon's testimony.
2: Sure. So over the course of about uh, you know about nine hours or so uh, that Steve Bannon uh, was on the on Capitol Hill. Um, A question would be asked. They would pause while his uh, attorney, Bill Burke, would uh, place a phone call to the White House to get an answer as to whether or not he can answer the question. And this went on. And, uh, you know, they. Uh, he refused then to answer a number of questions about his time, both uh, in the White House and even uh, during the transition, uh, you know, the, given the advice from the White House being that they may want to assert uh, an exec- executive privilege.
0: So, McGahn is supposed to defend the office of the president, not the president himself, but he's also a witness to controversial events under investigation by Mueller and Congress and reportedly took part in some of them. So, he could be a witness or possibly a defendant. What kind of potential conflicts do you see there?
2: Well, here you know at the moment it's it's kind of this uh, this appearance of possible conflict. Uh, as far as we know, Don McGahn hasn't recused himself from decisions on whether to assert executive privilege uh, in questioning over the Russia uh, the Russia matter, and um, you know he's been someone who also has had this front row seat. So. Uh, you know it's it it sort of looks a little strange when you potentially have kind of one witness calling another witness you know for advice on how to answer questions
0: and with lawyers it is the appearance of impropriety that is also supposed to be avoided he, what is the line? Do we know what the line is between defending the office and defending the man in the office?
2: Right. Well, well, defending the office, I mean, asserting executive privilege um, is kind of one of your one of your jobs assessing whether that needs to happen, because again, as White House counsel, you do not necessarily want Congress um, and others to be able to kind of pull in and get into the sort of business and decision making of the White House. It's one of the protections for the, you know, for the White House to be able to do its job. It gets a little tricky in situations where you have investigations that reach into the White House and reach into that sort of role of the White House counsel, where that person's a potential witness. And this has come up, uh, you know, uh, questions about that role has come up in past administrations, Nixon, Clinton, uh, and those investigations, court rulings that kind of came out of there, kind of really sort of limited uh, the protections of that sort of, that White House counsel really asserted that they're there not to protect the person in the office, but the office of the presidency itself.
0: McGann's lawyer not only represents Bannon, but also Reince Priebus. And there's nothing ethically wrong with that at this point, but you spoke to Nicholas Allard, dean of Brooklyn Law School. Tell us what he said about the difficulty of representing three people in the same matter.
2: Sure. Um, you know, again, you have three. You have three sort of key players here in this in this investigation, and um, to just try and get your arms around what each each one of those knows and their various sort of rights and uh, you know how they 're going to, how they 're answering questions or where they are and the, you know where they kind of fit into the probe is a is a pretty big job um, you know Bill Burke, uh, the lawyer for all three um, he 's a prominent defense lawyer in washington he 's handled uh, you know big political cases in the past he represented um, Virginia governor bob mcdonald 's wife in a corruption case there a few years ago so he 's a very experienced individual and he knows how to do big, also in corporate cases where it's it's not that unusual for a lawyer to handle, uh, you know, represent kind of multiple employees in a probe. I think the difference is, uh, you know, it, it it would be unusual for a single lawyer to handle uh, representation for a CEO, CFO, and the COO.
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely. Now, And it comes up in criminal cases where sometimes a lawyer at the beginning will represent two defendants, but then if their interests diverge at all, the judge will tell them that, you know, you need to get a separate lawyer to protect your own interests. This hasn't reached that point, but if it does, I take it that Mueller will be there to say something because he's already challenged some of the lawyers who have uh, two interests. Tell me about that.
2: Yeah, he uh so with regards to the uh the ca- the cases the case brought against Paul Manafort and uh and Rick Gates um in that matter there was uh you know a lawyer that uh Rick Gates had had hired who uh a New York lawyer happened to also be involved in a current case that uh, Mueller's team felt uh, Gates could possibly be a witness in that matter. So you had the lawyer kind of representing a defendant in a case in New York, as well as Rick Gates, who could potentially be uh, a, a witness in that case. And so the judge in the, uh, in the Manafort-Gates uh, matter here in Washington, uh, she kind of, you know, had the parties sort of explain to her the situation. And at the end of the day, you know, Gates was allowed to uh, kind of keep his lawyer, I think, once all sort of w- the, you know, everything was kind of explained in terms of what he would be giving up, uh, you know, the, the potential for harm there.
0: Something that has, has come up in, in the news is that though Bannon ex- asserted – well, he can't assert executive privilege – but though he, he refused to answer some questions based on the president's claim of executive privilege, when he goes to talk to Mueller's investigators whenever that time is, is set up, um, people familiar say that he is not going to assert executive privilege at that point. So does that put his lawyer in a strange position?
2: Yeah, it's uh you know I, I, in these big investigations like this these Washington investigations um obviously the hill uh, the hill's probe isn't a criminal probe right so you want to make sure that you're going to be as open as possible when you do talk to the sort of criminal investigators and so you know, if they were to uh, assert executive privilege, and then we may be in a situation like we have in past investigations where uh, Mueller's team could challenge it. next thing you know, we're in you know we're creating some new uh, some new precedent, um, the type of which we haven't seen in in some years.
0: Could it get any more complicated? That's a rhetorical question.
2: <laughs> it will. <laughs> Thanks
0: for being here. That's Tom Schoenberg, Bloomberg News Financial Crime reporter.